Hello and welcome everyone to What's New in Cloud FinOps with myself, Stephen Old. And Franck Contrepois. We are in a rush today, aren't we, Frank? Because we've got a brilliant section with uh, our friend from DF Tech, Dario Ferrer. Um, and it's worth putting extra time into that bit. So we're going to blitz through what's new. And it's worth noting for those people that are looking for reInvent updates, we're going to do a separate reInvent one because there's enough just for that. So Frank, do you want to kick us off? Yes, so we have uh, from AWS, we have a Zurich region which is coming out. So you have another region there. So Switzerland is going to be pleasing for our Swiss friends, uh, which cannot take data out of their country. Fantastic. Um, there is uh, in Azure a customized language in budget alerts. So now you can uh, notify with predefined thresholds and you can set exactly what's what's set there as well so it's some some additional depth and flexibility okay nice uh, then we also have savings plans alerts uh, now aws in cost management so you can now have an alert telling you it's expiring so that is going to be useful for all those people we're buying a lot of things follow the recommendation then end up not being not knowing <laughs> what Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, going back to Azure, preview and uh, new views for optimized resources and reservations. Kind of brought this one up last time, but there is some new changes in that as well. Um, and that you, you basically have a, a better vis visibility of, of what's going on there. Okay, yeah. And I'm going to do two in one. Uh, so on AWS, there is a new intelligent archive tiering and at 40% discount price reduction on Elastic Block Store uh, called HDD. Fantastic. Um, Cosmo DB Serverless, I don't know if we brought that up last time on Azure. That is now in preview. Uh, so a bit more similar to BigQuery um, in the fact that you're only going to pay for it while it's running. Okay, nice. Uh, there is also so the marketing tags and also bracket tags. So now you can tag your bracket. So bracket is uh, AWS quantum computing. It's just if you're trying those kind of things, you can now tag them. Useful for any university out there. And also marketplace, which until now you couldn't really uh, allocate to projects. So now that's now doable. Fantastic. Um, back to Azure again. More IOPS at no additional cost for Azure File Premium tier. Exactly what you think, they've increased the amount of IOPS available without increasing the, the cost. So they've just upgraded probably because they've put some new hardware in. Okay, well, it's brilliant. And last, uh, I think that's my last one for today, EC2 instance rebalance recommendation for spot instances. So depending on the price and things are gonna disappear, these spot instances are gonna be uh, taken back. There will be a recommendation of what can be used next. Fantastic. There's been a few bits with Google, but I find they generally don't release too much around reInvent because it gets lost in the noise. So we might see a lot in January or after in December. One thing I really did like, because I've always been a fan of the technology, uh, is Cloud Spanner. You can automatically right-size the instances with a new auto scaler, uh, which is great because nothing on Spanner is particularly cheap because it's such a brilliant technology um, and it's obviously distributed. So actually being able to get it to automatically right-size. And from my understanding, uh, that is without uh, without downtime as well, as, as you can anticipate. So that is, that's really impressive for, for any type of SQL DB, as you know. 
Oh yes. Oh yes. I uh, I really like Spanner. I've uh, at least I've seen the technology. I've not used it as you say due to the price tag. Yeah. I've had it. had one project where we've used it, um, which was a really really cool project. And the only other thing that jumped out to me off the top of my head, and I, yeah, I think this was uh, actually in December, so earlier this month. Um, Dataproc has some uh, new faster machine learning uh, with new initialization actions. So that should be reducing the cost of, of your, um, certainly increasing the efficiency of, of Dataproc, which again is great, great technology. Um, and that is that, I think. So without further ado, we're going to move across to our special section today, which is, which is, yeah, a deep dive into serverless optimization. There we, go. there we go. Great stuff. Um, wow, we did that in five minutes, which is great. So we need we need all the time we can for for Dario. Dario, great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, and and what it is you do now? No, I'm too shy. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'm I'm Dario Ferrer. You know me, Steve, since long ago. I've been uh, working as a uh, senior SRE for many, many years now, I would say more than 10. And at this time, I, I own my own company based both in, we have two offices, one small office in, we have two small offices, one in London, one in Bilbao, uh, north, north of Spain in the Basque country. And this staff that I've been speaking about, basically migrating workloads into microservices in the cloud. That's what we do. Uh, this company is called DivTech and we are proud uh, partners and friends of Strategic Blue. And that's that's pretty much it, that's me. Great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Uh, so you, it's great to have you here. Uh, Dario is a, a, co a former colleague of of mine from back in the day. And we've, we've brought you on Dario because of uh, a project you've done recently, which we found really interesting around finding uh, cost and speed optimization by uh, optimizing itself code and function as a service. Yep. So I think what really impressed me about this, and I think firstly, I saw it on LinkedIn was was the the magnitude of of what you've done but before we we go into how much success you had can you just tell us a little bit about what the initial situation was what what you were looking at in the first place um before you start optimizing it is funny because in this particular case i was not uh precisely looking for just optimization but i was also looking for gold um maintainability if i should say so because uh, it was in the plan to migrate let's say every serverless bit on that particular project from python to golang and we were thinking in optimization of course and that was part of the plan indeed but the main thing was just to change to golang because it's somewhat a um, language way easier to maintain, particularly in, in this serverless world in which every single application is split into thousands of bits and pieces. So the original plan was to optimize plus just switch to Golang. It was basically a migra language migration, programming language migration. 
and that end up as you as you saw in a massive optimization of uh, all the Google functions that we were using. And the interesting about this is, although this work was was done on Google, the same rules apply, right? In terms of the the benefit of moving to to GoLang um, as a as a business slash technical choice, it was significantly easier to maintain, like you say, than the than the previous um, language choice. Yes. So I will say that it's even easier, or or it's more or less the same, but it's 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 even easier to maintain in in the case of AWS. Which are, by the way, the two cloud platforms that I mainly uh, that I'm involved in, uh, Google and so GCP and AWS, and both in both cases when you are doing serverless, basically Google functions and, and AWS Lambda functions, it is very very easy to deploy GoLang functions, but um, it's, it's not just so the I will say that the main the most important bit of this optimization was not uh, migrating to GoLang itself. Most important bit was to do, just do it properly. So we could have done this in uh, Python or, or uh, whichever Node.js or whichever language that you prefer to do. Most important optimization chunk was not uh, migrating to GoLang. It was a, an important one, but not the most important one. If, if you want, I can I can tell you the two or three uh, most impacting uh, changes that we made to that uh, bits of code, and, and 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 we can in that way we can see how this was impacting so hugely the the, the billing eventually and and the overall uh, speed of of the functions. Yeah, and I mean, if if we could attack those, maybe. As, as well as possibly we can in the chronological order. So which one did you attack first out of those big three, uh, as well as understanding the impact of it? That might be really helpful, you know, but where people start when they're trying to do something like this. I think people would really like to know that. So, sure. The first step was to re-architect um, the logic of the functions. And, and, and here, this is a very broad area in which you can do mainly everything but in in this particular case we were writing data into google bigquery which is like a very large uh, database uh, or, or yeah database let's call it like that, that that you can use for for many purposes in this case we were injecting data on each http call that was happening into a function we were injecting data into bigquery into into this google uh, fully managed database and and that's not uh, the most optimal way of doing things so the first thing that we that we um, um, implement into the into this optimization was basically catching we we needed to not to write data directly into the database on each call to the to the function but to catch it somewhere and, and then given a, an amount of uh, data points or, or data that you have to catch somewhere, then uh, put that into, into BigQuery or into the final database. So that was like an architectural uh, decision because what happened in this project in the first place was a kind of uh, dirty lift and shift 
from whichever they had before, monolithic code in uh, static instances or something like that, into serverless. That's a huge improvement, but uh, you normally don't do it properly. And this was the case. So uh, we implemented this caching. In this case, we were using Redis, using memory store from, from Google. But you can also, in, in some specific cases, particularly in AWS more than Google, you can, you can also use local cache into the Lambda function itself in, in the small chunk of local storage. I mean, there are a number of, of ways that you can use local cache or Redis or other, other kind of fast, low latency databases such as DynamoDB in AWS um, before the, dropping data into the actual target database. Yeah, that was the key thing, was it? Ch yeah, changing from every single function calling the database to almost batching that, having it somewhere quick um, and local, and then moving it on separately from there. That was step one, right? Exactly. So in this case, it was mandatory that you are not missing any single data point. So we couldn't use any kind of ephemeral local storage in the function itself. And we were using uh, Redis. That was, the, that was the decision that we made. And, and so we jump from writing every single data point into the target database. And that means opening and closing a connection and so on and so forth to, to writing every uh, number of them. Let's say a uh, hundred or 200, I don't remember which was the, the, the final number. So that was first, first step. And second step, this is also global to all the languages was to optimize the function itself. As in, whenever you are using Lambda or Google functions, you have to read carefully the documentation and check how they actually work. So the functions, they have this thing called uh, cold start and, or cold call and hot call. And that stands for the functions that are actually being executed somewhere. Let's think they are being executed in containers in a particular Google or AWS backend. And the first time you call this function uh, in a while, let's say in, in the last 10 minutes, I don't know exactly the numbers. And I think they, they, they don't even tell you exactly the numbers, but- Yeah, I don't think they're in the documentation, are they? Because they, they, they are willing you to uh, just do it properly. So maybe the, maybe the numbers, they're in the documentation, but anyway. Uh, let's let's say it's 10 minutes. It's around 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes anyway. So if you just call it and uh, there was no any uh, prior call, so this is like the first call in some minutes, that's considered a call start. And that means the whole code within your Google or Lambda function, it's gonna be uh, instantiated in memory, okay? So uh, th there is no way to optimize that. But the second hit into the function, the second HTTP call that's gonna call the endpoint that it's reaching your function through gateway API or directly into a Google function or whatever. If that happens within uh, seconds, that's gonna be a hot start. So that's different. That, that stands for uh, whichever objects that are already instantiated in memory, they can be reduced. And at that point, it is very, very, very important uh, how, how have you called your code as in uh, the, the, the small part of the function that it's going to be executed every time you 
call the function. It, it is called a handler. And, and that should be small. That should be doing the least amount of things that have to be instantiated. For example, in this case, we were calling a function. Uh, sorry, we were uh, targeting a database. That means you have to open a connection with the database. You have to instantiate an SDK client that it's going to get credentials and authorization for that particular uh, Google or AWS service. And, and that takes time. And you don't need to do that in order to insert two different objects into Reddit or into uh, BigQuery. You just need to do that once, and then you just can call the insert uh, part of the function more than once. So if you do that, uh, let's call it initialization bit uh, into, a, into an initialization part of the function. So out of the handler, let's say, out of the bit that Lambda and Google it's actually calling every single uh, hot star, then that has to be executed only once every number of minutes. And that's huge optimization. Yeah. And that stands for uh, minimizing or, or dividing by, by a factor, by 10 or something like that. In our case, it was strictly by 10. Uh, the, the amount of milliseconds or microseconds that, you, that your function is going to take to run every single uh, hot code. Yeah. And also you're charged by the duration of the, you know, the duration. So the fact that you're always going hot and you're never having to pay for that, that first piece where it's working it out, especially with the Lambda changes where you're charged for, um, you know, it's down to the millisecond and you're charged for initialization. That's really key if you've got it there stored hot, ready to Indeed. go. Indeed. So you're charged by uh, two or three things, but basically two things. The, the bigger you provision your function, as in CPU and memory, and the time that it takes to execute. Okay? The combination of those two things is what you're paying. So here it, it comes directly into why to use Go. In, in order to reduce the amount of uh, CPU and, and memory uh, specifications that your function need, one of the best things that you can do is just to have a simpler, smaller, and more optimized executable. And that's where Go is simply beating uh, Python, Node.js, and all those uh, interpret languages like by 10 times uh, less memory consumption and, and so on and so forth. So in this case, the function was, the original Python function uh, was big. It was not just one function, okay? Uh, there were a collection of functions, but they were big. And hence, in order for the function itself to fit in memory, we, we couldn't get to the cheapest, in this case, the cheapest uh, Google memory and CPU tire. So we had to go for the second one which is somewhat twice as expensive as the first one. That means our, our new binary is 10 times smaller as in memory footprint, memory consumption. And, and so you can just go for the smallest uh, type of function that you, can, that you can get. And hence you are you're paying uh, half of the bill basically just with that. So that's, that's because you're not, you're not storing useless libraries, right? Or parts of libraries you just don't need. It's just because it's, it's exactly, it's more optimized. So in, in 
Golang is a compiled language. So whichever you import and whichever you use is uh, whatever is going to be compiled is just that. The, the compiler is smart enough to, to compile in a single binary only those libraries and even only those parts of the libraries that you're going to use. Yeah, so eventually you're, you're having a, a way smaller um, in-memory object or in-memory whole program actually. While in Python, you're holding the whole library, even though it's not being used, right? Because the compiler is not looking at that. It's just, you tell it, it has these libraries, it loads those libraries into your binaries. Is that fair to say? Exactly, exactly. So that's that's one of the main points to use Golang in general. And, and that's why Golang is getting more and more uh, popular these days. And, and also not related to Google functions or Lambda is because you don't have any dependency. Okay. It is related as in dependencies are going to take more space and more, um, it's, it's going to take a little bit longer to deploy Lambda functions to deploy Google functions if you are using Python. Whereas in, in Golang, deploying a new function is extremely fast, but that's not, uh, that's not ending up in, in, in a faster execution. That's just better from a deployment point of view which is for me as a DevOps engineer, it's also a very important bit, but it's not uh, whatever we are, this, we are discussing here. So that was kind of uh, why we decided to go for Golang. Yeah. And eventually we end up having a, a function after rewriting the function, doing more or less the same, that it was uh, basically, 10 times faster and, and, and that end up in being uh, a bill, literally 10 times less, a bill for Google functions, of course, uh, 10 yeah. times less than, than it was before. Plus uh, the backend was 10 times happier because uh, we also needed a little bit of optimization for, for the good functioning of the application itself. This is an, an, an IoT project and we have uh, several machines in the backend that they are, uh, sorry, uh, machines in the out there in the world that they are hitting the backend all at the same time. And we need this to be uh, fast, responsive and, and so on and so forth. So now no, we are, um, yeah, we just have the whole thing going way smoother and it's, it's literally 10 times uh, better in all senses, including uh, 10 times cheaper. I think, What's really important about that, Dario, is we're talking about it being 10 times cheaper than it was already as a function or set of functions, not even comparing it to when it was a monolithic um, you know, application sat on machines that probably weren't scaling and was sat there for peak load, et cetera. You know, I know we can't do it here, but it's really worth putting that in scale. When people move Large, you know, in almost all situations, when people move from, you know, monoliths on on uh, on big instances down to functions, they've already made a significant saving, you know, of an order of magnitude. And then what we're saying is, yep, in this case, they've done that. They got there. They've done it in the way they had to do it at the time. But then when you can start turning those even tinier screws to make things even tighter, you've made it ten times better. Than what some people would see as an end state 
oh, I've already refactored this into functions. But actually, when you've got real experts like yourself involved, you can make that even more optimized and and even not and it's great obviously me and frank care about the money and that's what we talk about that's what the podcast's about but i think it's also really crucial that it's 10 times in multiple ways in terms of the speed in terms of the ease of being able to look after it moving forward and stuff like that it's a real real change and you know you think about a bill let's say it was initially five thousand dollars down to 500 who isn't going to love that kind of change and uh, i think that's what really makes this a a quite a really nice story to tell because we often talk about the stuff at the beginning of people's journeys but it's quite nice to show people just what level of success you can have at the end as well um yeah, frank yeah. i think um you're, you're back with us and you had a few questions which are a bit more generic but i think are really important that people have concerns about functions and so do you want to do you want to ask Darius some of those questions? Uh, yeah, uh, cool. Hello, yes. Uh, so let me see again. Also, I need to refine my. So, how do you, the, the first question, which was a little technical, is so, how do you keep all the functions working together as a coordinated effort, as a coordinated program? Yeah, so it is funny because back, back in the days, um, there was this so-called spaghetti code or well now spaghetti code is actually a slightly different concept but back in the days we had functionality in many places as in uh in the databases we have storage procedures that they were doing things and 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 i remember at, at some point we were all all the developers on the box people we were trying to avoid that and concentrate everything in a monolithic place uh as in take out your uh, functions and their code your uh, functionality from databases and put everything on your application itself because having everything centralized is the only way to maintain code and so on and so forth and now these days with the serverless booming we are doing the opposite the opposite thing we are going back to to having code in many different places so the way to keep everything working together it's basically by having the whole application as a single entity somehow. And this somehow in, in my particular case, or better say from my particular point of view, is by having the uh, application always running on the cloud, having development uh, environments always running in the cloud and having the developers, providing the developers with, with easy tools to deploy their applications directly in the cloud. And so, by using tools like uh, infrastructure as code or, or config management tools that they have the whole application, including the cloud infrastructure all together in, in the same, let's say Git repository or something like that, or, or whichever uh, revision repository are using. That's, that's the way to, to maintain uh, a certain cohesion and, and coherence of the whole code. It gets slightly more complex uh, somehow, as in your application is not a single binary anymore running somewhere, but it's a bunch of things that they are calling to each other. And, and you have to make a mind change, as in thinking in your application, as in microservices that they speak to each other using APIs. That's, that makes the application slightly more complex but that's how 
everything works these days. As in, if you go to Kubernetes, you speak to Kubernetes API and you make your uh, application, you split your application into containers that they run in pods and eventually they are the same than uh, Google or, or Lambda functions. They are just small bits and pieces that they speak to each other using APIs. It is slightly more complicated if you are a single developer or a small company with two developers. But if you have a big company with a big project with uh, more than one or two developers, this complication is actually easier because the same way that you are uh, splitting your application into parts in order to be manageable, you are actually uh, not just logically, but actually splitting your application into chunks, in this case, microservices, that you are going to assign to different developers. So a developer now, these days, uh, has to only take care of his or hers uh, two or, or, or 10 uh, chunks of code that they run as microservices in Lambda functions or, or Google functions. And that's it. As long as your API, it's going to respond wherever it has to respond, the code is okay. And if you have the tools to deploy this stuff and test this stuff easily in the cloud, uh, then it's actually easier for you. And for the rest of the company, for, for, for the application as a whole, it is also easier because it, it all boils down to uh, having in mind that every single bit of the application is going to have a common API, a common language to speak to each other. And you don't actually need to understand how the rest of the application work. So uh, long story short, it makes slightly more complex the application if the application is a very simple, small application. But if the application is already having uh, a lot of internal moving parts, it's actually easier to, to have those small uh, bits of the application to be uh, deployed and, and develop totally separately in, in Lambda or Google Functions. I don't know if I have answered your question, but yes, I think did. that was more or less there. So the way you describe it makes me, uh, brings me another question, which is how do you, um, change the approach for designing application all of a sudden? Because I guess you need to change the way from the old ways you design applications. Yeah, so as I say, and uh, the way you introduce this new methodology in a company, I, I take that's, that's what you mean. It's by basically you present the new tools to the developers and, and, and to those teams that they have to deploy each bit of the application. And, and you have to make sure that everyone is gonna be even more comfortable with the new way because they are gonna see it as an easier way to, to deploy and maintain the application than, than before. It, it depends on who you are speaking to. If you are speaking to the CTO or the CFO, uh, it's, it's easier. You are just going to tell them that this is going to be uh, way uh, more uh, financially optimized. This is going to be cheaper. It's going to be faster. It's going to be way, way easier to maintain, which is something that we didn't spoke about. But uh, by using these microservices, 
there, there is no any disk filling or, or there is no any um, there is no anything that it's going to be compromised that it's going to require any kind of support so support it's going to basically going to almost disappear from from the scene so in that case to to convince uh, C-level people at the company in order to switch to use microservices is going to be uh, microservices in the cloud. It's going to be easy. Whenever you want to introduce this methodology to developers, this, that's where you normally uh, encounter some resistance. But uh, there are some pretty awesome tools from both AWS and Google, and I believe Azure, although I'm, I'm not a user myself that they are allowing developers to directly integrate in their developing tools, in their IDEs and, and whichever developing tools they are using. They are allowing them to uh, test their code into, into the serverless uh, frameworks. Like there is one very famous in AWS, it's called serverless framework itself. I believe it's compatible with uh, Google Functions as well, and and by using this kind of frameworks and tools, a developer is able to test the code, and and if the developer will be working on, on on uh, his or her local machine, but they're actually using the cloud, and the fact that the 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 thing that you are going to test and. So develop and test is going to be exactly the same thing that it's going to run in the cloud. It's something that it normally works very well with developers in order to make them switch to this new serverless approach. Because there is always this fight between developers that they claim that whichever they have developed, it works in their laptop. But then it doesn't work in production because at the time of uh, deploying the same thing somewhere else, uh, libraries change, dependencies change, and the whole thing doesn't work. That that barrier, it gets virtually eliminated when you're using the pure serverless approach because the, the developer is going to develop directly using the very same infrastructure that the production application is using. So that's, that's the thing that I try to sell developers in order to switch to microservices. And, and also the fact that if you want to work in a proper company these days, you have to do it this way. Otherwise you have a, a, an end date that it's gonna be anytime soon. Okay. Just a bit of a question, because we're gonna do a, um, a reInvent special separately, but have you been keeping an eye on what's gone on at reInvent? And is there anything that's come out that you think is really cool? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> yes to the first question. Uh, reInvent is nice, but these these days I, I have the feeling that almost everything is already uh, has been already invented. So yeah. th things are really cool, but most of the stuff that I'm I've, I've been seeing that they are uh, announcing, it was already there somehow. Yeah, the, it's like an upgrade, isn't bits it? The that, that I'm following uh, are all in the ML and, and artificial intelligence field. Mm -hmm. And most of that, that stuff is it's very cool, uh, but it was there already. But it's, it's quite cool. I mean, I, I always recommend to follow reInvent because th there's always something new 
at least for you to know, if, even if there was, if it was there already, maybe you didn't know about that. Yeah, agreed. And that's worth noting, actually, a chunk of your background, some of the projects I've, I've seen you work on are also in the in the ML field and the big data stuff, isn't there? You've got quite a lot of experience with with that. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm doing these days, 80% of my time. So yeah. it's, it's these days, I will say every single, at least every single big company, they are doing something with data. And that's something with data. Normally it's at least 50%, it's it related to machine learning. And so business, they, they, they want to do stuff with their data. They want to take advantage of whichever data they are producing. And it is not useless anymore. It's quite useful these days. And yeah, almost every single uh, company that, that I'm dealing with, they are having either a small or big side projects about ML and, and they want to integrate this in the cloud. Because again, these big players, Google and AWS, they, are, they have the greatest tools to, to do whichever ML stuff you need to do. And we could speak about how to optimize stuff in machine learning too. <laughs> and we should probably do that as a separate one. But that, that will be like a, a way longer and separate <laughs> one, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us, Darry. You've, um, you've answered all, all of my questions and it's and it's really great to, to you know, have, have a, a more of a techie discussion for a change because we've been keeping it quite high level up to now. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us, mate. Yeah, thanks. thanks for giving the opportunity to a, to a nerd to, to speak publicly. <laughs> That's all right. Our pleasure. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.